Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day, they're taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecast, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Having all of your business's information in one place is a powerful thing because it allows you to make better decisions, which is why NetSuite's unprecedented offer to make this possible is something to take advantage of. Don't wait. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com strange. That's netsuite.com strange to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Do you believe in ghosts? That's a question that comes up pretty often in our circles, so forgive us if you've already been asked today. But we find it's a useful litmus test. Lovers of the strange and unusual tend to fall into a few distinct camps. Those who want to believe. Those who think it's all a bit silly. And then there's those who are absolutely certain because they're sure that they themselves have seen a ghost. Or, perhaps, ghosts, plural. Now, mostly, these stories are harmless enough. Perhaps you once saw something strange at your grandmother's house, a a rocking chair that rocked when it shouldn't, or a strange reflection in a mirror, or a famous apparition coming down the stairs of that old theater where your college drama club put on the yearly production of Phantom of the Opera. Those ghost stories, we think, are ultimately all in good fun. But there are others out there with much darker tales. Those who believe in ghosts not because they want to, but because they must. You can spot those people by the haunted look in their eyes, or perhaps the haunted look of their houses. It will come as no surprise when we tell you that the United States is full of more purportedly haunted houses than we could possibly cover on this podcast, though we'll certainly give it our best shot. It works to our advantage that these stories tend to follow one of a few tried-and-true formulas. First, there's the old built-on-a-graveyard-or-sacred-ground model. 
Then there's the buried, literally or figuratively, dark secrets of former residents that terrorize new residents. And finally, there's the cursed object, something brought into the home that's actually causing all the shenanigans. Anything from a Ouija board that opens a gate to hell, whoops, to a creepy-looking doll that moves around at night and, oh, pushes Grandma down a flight of stairs. But today, strangers, we're bringing you a very, well, unique haunted item. Actually, we'd bet money that it's the only one of its kind ever reported. You see, back in 1988, in the small town of Horicon, Wisconsin, a family of five unintentionally brought evil into their home. No, we're not describing the plot of the movie Poltergeist. In this case, our unwilling protagonists were the Tallman family, Alan, Deborah, and their three small children, a boy and two toddler girls, whose names were kept out of the papers. That was a running theme with the family. They didn't seek out attention. It's more like attention found them. According to the Lacrosse Tribune, it all began with a simple $100 purchase. You see, the Tallmans had recently moved into a new ranch-style home in Horicon. In the home, which had only been built a few years before, their daughters would share a room. So Alan and Deborah decided to buy what many children of the 1980s coveted, a set of bunk beds. In the spring of 1987, they brought the bunk beds into their home on Larrabee Street, a rural neighborhood in a rural town, with, we assume, every expectation of enjoying their purchase. Strangers, they would not, in fact, be doing that. Instead, their expenditure would trigger nine months of terrifying events. According to the Associated Press, an odd occurrence with the family radio was the first sign that something was amiss. But it was just subtle enough that Deborah and Alan could write it off as a malfunction of the device. Deborah told reporters about the mysterious behavior of her radio. The dial began to dance around of its own accord. Deborah told them, We thought it was interference. I looked at the radio and I saw the knobs were moving and the station indicator was going back and forth across. But then the voices started. Not from the radio, from the house. And they weren't talking, not at first. The Tallman children told Deborah and Alan that as they played, they heard someone telling them to shh. Per the UPI, Deborah and Alan assumed the children were having a little fun, perhaps a case of overactive imaginations. After all, it was odd, but nothing frightening. Not then. Soon there were odder things. As the year wore on, the Tallman's older daughter had a much more vivid story to share. Per the UPI, she cried out for her parents one night, and when they arrived, quote, she started screaming that there was a fire on the door of her room. Of course, the Tallman saw nothing, not then. And, now, this is just our supposition, we guess that the limited communication abilities of a two-and-a-half-year-old 
wouldn't have necessarily set off the parents' alarm bells. Children are such vivid dreamers after all, and when they're that small, they often lose track of what happened in their sleep versus in the waking world. But soon, the Tallman's oldest child, their boy, came running with his own frightening tale. According to the UPI, he told his mother that, I saw an old lady standing by the door in my room, a little old lady, really ugly, with long black hair and a glow about her like fire. Several other papers described this apparition as a witch of about four feet tall, so likely close to the size of the Tallman's own son, which obviously would have been absolutely terrifying, but even that could have been chalked up to a cruel trick of young imagination. However, eventually, the adults began to have their own encounters with the unexplained. Per the UPI, Deborah and Alan both heard howling wind that rushed and suddenly stopped inside the home. Then came the disembodied voices. Deborah reported that a suitcase, quote, slid out from underneath the bed all on its own, and a terrified babysitter told the couple that she'd watched a family rocking chair begin to move back and forth without an occupant. By Christmas of 1987, Alan had had enough. According to the American banker, his two daughters, who you'll remember were both under three years old, managed to tell him that they'd seen a swirling fog in their bedroom. And that wasn't all. The fog had actually begun whispering to them, whispering that they were going to die. As a parent, Alan obviously found that unacceptable. He raced through the house and, per the American banker, announced to whatever entities might be listening that they'd better pick on someone their own size, namely him. In response, they did. Quote, he saw flames coming from the garage door. A voice said, come here. And two eyes appeared in the windows of the garage door. He said he looked again and there was no fire. If Alan and Deborah had been holding on to any more doubt of their children's stories, it disappeared that night. Listeners, at this juncture in the story, it's fair to ask, besides threatening unseen entities with words, what were the Tallmans doing about these harrowing experiences? As in, were they attempting to seek out help? It's a harder situation than you might imagine. Of course, they had contacted local police, but the full force of the law isn't the ideal answer to spectral threats. Actually, they tried a number of things. According to the Associated Press, they'd begun to suspect that the source of their problems might lie not with the house itself, not exactly, but with something they'd brought into it. Namely, those bunk beds. Why? Well, for two reasons. First, the girls' bedroom was a particular hotspot of ghostly activity. And second, they felt that the problems had only begun once those beds had entered the house. So at some point, and the timeline's a little fuzzy here, the Tallmans had at least one paranormal expert visit their home to see if any determination of the source of the unholy haunting could be discovered. According to the Chippewa Herald-Telegram, 
That paranormal investigator was Carl Schutt from The Whisper Center, which is quite a name for a paranormal investigation firm if we do say so ourselves. Apparently, Carl's main goal at Larrabee Street was to search for so-called psychic hotspots, which he said would have been associated with the strange visions and experiences encountered by the Tallman family, such as the burning door or the witch-like creature or the floating green eyes. Carl told the Herald-Telegram that he measured biofeedback, how it wasn't made clear, but he somehow, quote, used techniques on himself as he examined the home. The results were as follows. He did, in fact, uncover areas or hotspots that, quote, increased stimulation of his extrasensory abilities. Those included the home's basement and the girls' bedroom. Yes, where the bunk beds were stored. Interestingly, though, Carl wasn't impressed by that particular piece of furniture. He told reporters, I didn't feel it was the bed itself. Although the Tallman's experience at the home had been harrowing, Carl felt it wasn't the bed. Carl said to reporters, To me, it seems like a very loving house. Considering the death threats, moving suitcases, radios, fireballs, and strange fogs, we assume that Alan Tallman and company would disagree, but hey, different strokes. Shocking, we know, but it seems that the Tallmans didn't hold Carl's opinions in high regard. They would also turn to both the local police and, eventually, their own church's pastor for help. Hey there, strangers. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from two totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy is a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses the skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of a haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. Really, this is the perfect podcast for fans of One Strange Thing. All the paranormal activity that you love and the great research that you've come to rely on. So, listen to The Dead Files, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, 
with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Though police didn't arrest any ghosts, they did investigate. They were primarily interested in searching the home, not for spirits, but for hidden mechanisms. The chief of police, Douglas Glamon, told UPI, We wanted to see if there were any recording devices or some kind of projection equipment. My job is to keep the peace in the neighborhood. Secondly, to see if somebody's screwing around with these people. If that comes up unfounded, the rest is somebody else's ballgame. According to the UPI, nothing suspicious was found. The chief then told the Wisconsin Journal, As of now, we've washed our hands of the whole thing. We took the barricades down last night, and our investigation is over. Now, in many cases like the Tallmans, the local police have, historically at least, cast a wary eye on the families, often suspecting them of being in cahoots with paranormal investigators, media types, or just being out for their own 15 minutes of fame. But it seems that Chief Glamon didn't suspect them. He told UPI, All I can say is that I believe that they believe that they saw something. Alas, all this investigation did nothing to calm the spirits at Larrabee Street, and things came to a head in the new year of 1988, when the unknown presence ramped up its death threats. As the UPI tells it, one night Alan sat in his daughter's bedroom, watching them as they fell asleep. Just as the youngest drifted off, he heard a whisper in his ear. You're dead. Fog rose from the floor. Green eyes glowed in the darkness. The AP added to the UPI story with a quote from Alan. I heard this vacuum-like sound, and this thing came right out of the floor. It was gassy and foggy. It rose up there, and a voice came out of there, and it, it said, You're dead. These green eyes appeared right out of this thing, and then I saw flames, and it was gone. That was it. The family was determined to move. Although no one was technically harmed during their nine-month ordeal, they took the death threat seriously. Per the American banker, the Tallmans hightailed it for a local motel. And that's when they enlisted the help of their pastor, Wayne Dobritz. He returned with them to their home just a few days after they'd fled to the motel to see if he could cleanse it of the unholy presence. According to the Chicago Tribune, the couple told Wayne that they'd felt the children's bunk beds were haunted, but their minister was less sure. He felt the presence of evil was more likely tied to the house itself, but he didn't necessarily suspect a haunting. Not precisely. He was leaning into a very 1980s cause, satanic influence. According to the La Crosse Tribune, Pastor Wayne suspected that the house could have been cursed by former residents' satanic practices or the occult behaviors of outsiders, certainly not the Tallmans, he hastened to add, 
who could have performed rituals in the home. According to Pastor Wayne, the only way that the bunk beds could have been involved was if someone had done something nefarious on them, such as use a Ouija board. The pastor told the Lacrosse Tribune that there were no more issues, but considering that the Talmans and the bunk beds were gone, we don't know how strong of an endorsement that was. Per the American banker, even after the pastor's final attempt at a cleansing, the Talmans never returned to their house. According to the Chicago Tribune, one of the Talmans' final acts was to dump the bunk beds where no one would ever find them. Deborah Talman told reporters, The beds were buried in a landfill where nobody will ever build. They took them out there and they plowed them under. Actually, they were able to sign it over to the mortgage company without even attempting a sale. And the public opinion on them, in Horicon, seemed to be disbelieving, but mostly friendly. Local papers made mention of t-shirts with jokey slogans and ghost-shaped cookies on sale at the local bakery. And it stayed that way, at least until the family were featured on Unsolved Mysteries. It's fair to say that the town of Horicon was not pleased with this development. A newspaper called The Reporter noted that the residents of the Talman's old neighborhood, especially those on Larrabee Street, weren't thrilled to have the Unsolved Mysteries crew in town. Although the subsequent owners of the home had given their permission for filming, neighbors complained about the disruption. They didn't like the lights or the vehicles or the equipment, such as the prop bunk beds that had been brought in for filming, and they showed their distaste in a variety of ways. The new owners defended their choice to allow the filming, but preferred not to share their names with the media. The mother of the family told the reporter, We want to make people wake up about what happened to the Talmans, that things like this could happen to anyone in the world. I've read a lot on it and I have an open mind about the supernatural. But it seems that she and the chief of police, who thought the Talmans believed in what they'd seen, might have been in the minority. There are two suspicious factors that keep coming up. As the author of the book Wisconsin Mysteries noted, the Talmans, quote, sold their story twice, to Unsolved Mysteries and to the authors of another book on American hauntings. And then there's the fact that they were able to get out of their mortgage without the hassle of actually having to sell their home. Pretty convenient, right? Well, it might have been. Except for one strange thing. There's no evidence that the Talmans ever profited from their encounters. We've found no support for the allegations that the Talmans were paid for their story or that Unsolved Mysteries ever made a practice of paying families interviewed for the show. Television shows occasionally pay experts a small fee, but the standard is that interview subjects, such as the family members or victims interviewed on Dateline or Unsolved Mysteries, are never paid because that could affect how a story is told. But in the spirit of thoroughness, we checked in with resident Unsolved Mysteries expert, Robin Warder, host of the Trail Went Cold podcast. He's spoken with a num he has spoken with a number of people who've been on the show, and he assured us that, to his knowledge, our suspicion was correct. And 
As we all know, you should always trust a Canadian podcast host. As for the second allegation, there are no notations concerning the Tallman's paid participation in the American Hauntings book. But several articles do mention that they turned down a lucrative offer from the National Enquirer. Even the author of the aforementioned book noticed that the family had rejected that. And it certainly didn't seem that they were after fame. It's true that the Tallmans participated in the television program, but they did so with privacy in mind. Per the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, they had three conditions for their participation in the show. That, quote, they were censored during their interview, their children's names were to be protected by alias, and that all reenactments of their experiences be done by actors playing the Tallman family. And when the family finally moved to a new home, per the American banker, they wisely paid for an unlisted phone number. And how about that new home? Was the haunting story a scheme to get out of a troublesome mortgage or to make a quick buck? According to the American banker, no. The American banker wrote that, quote, The estimated value of the house without ghosts is $50,400. There's no known depreciation for things that go bump in the night. Mortgage representatives, the Tallmans had a federal loan designed for a rural area, said they'd normally require that the homeowners make an effort to sell the home themselves before allowing a surrender of the title. But... As the American banker wrote, quote, Exceptions are allowed, however, and even in the bureaucratic maze of a government agency, the Tallman situation warrants one of those exceptions. But that doesn't mean that they got off with a good deal. Several news outlets reported that the Tallmans took a loss of 3000 in signing over their home, which in 2022 money amounts to a little over $7,000. That is a big hit to take to avoid putting your house on the market. Some, those perhaps like police chief Glamon, who believed that the Tallmans saw something but had no clear answers, looked for alternative explanations. A year after the events on Larrabee Street, another option seemed to emerge. The Wisconsin Journal published an article that covered the theory many in town had developed that gas leaks, either natural or otherwise, had caused the Tallmans to hallucinate and imagine their spectral infestation. According to the journal, there had been natural gas leaks in southwestern Wisconsin in the late 80s. This included areas of Horicon, but though there had been problems with some, quote, Electro-stop devices installed in 1983 in four city gas lines, Wisconsin Power and Light officials said that none of the faulty fittings found leaking in town were in the South Larrabee Street area. So, no gas leaks for the Tallmans. According to the journal, some then suggested swamp or marsh gas might be to blame, and there are marshes in the area, but there was no explanation of how exactly the Tallman's home would have been involved. And more importantly, according to numerous news outlets, the new residents reported no issues. So if swamp gas was to blame, where had it gone? After their move, the Tallman's eschewed the limelight and kept their heads down. They never reported further incidents of the paranormal kind, 
So it's probably a safe guess that ridding themselves of that furniture meant ridding themselves of what they believed to be a haunting. But it certainly left a mark. One of the final comments Deborah made to reporters was printed in the Chicago Tribune. I think it's going to be a long time before things get back to normal. I still can't sit at home at night and not be afraid of the dark. Ultimately, we can't say what really happened at the Tallman's home, but their absolute refusal to participate in the media storm, their willingness to take a significant monetary loss on a dream home that was only three years old, and the fact that they've never cashed in, not even 30-plus years on, we think we might side with Chief Glamon on this particular tale, that we believe that they believe that they saw something. And belief? Well, strangers, what's stronger than that? We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers... One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There you'll get ad-free releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes.